Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. How confident are you when it comes to life's biggest money decisions? What is real financial peace and how can you get it? Chris Flaming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. They bring together the brightest minds to show you how to have a more confident financial future. They empower listeners with common sense concepts and financial wisdom. And now here are your hosts, LPF Advisors. All right, everyone, welcome Renee Decker. Renee practices law as a trusted advisor to families to help them stay out of court and out of conflict during the difficult time after an injury, death, or disability of a loved one. She is a member of Wealth Council, Elder Council, and the Hillsbury County Bar Association. She's also a member of the Florida Bar Speakers Bureau, through which she provides education to the public on the importance of estate and incapacity planning. And today, she's here to talk to us about estate and incapacity planning after divorce. All right. Thank you, Seth. Let me see if I can get the screen shared. One second. Okay. So hopefully everyone has my screen now. Uh, Yes, we are seeing your Google Slides. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So as Seth said, I am here to talk to you guys today about wills, trust, and incapacity, and the basic post-divorce. And so um, there's a lot to talk about with with people in general about wills, trust, and incapacity. And then when we add the layer of complexity of divorce on onto it, it gets really important um, to be thinking through all of the things that uh, change a little bit and work a little bit differently for your clients after they've gone for a divorce, for our clients after they've gone for, through a divorce. So um, I want to run through, you know, what are the things that we think about in general when we think about wills, trust, and incapacity? And then how do those things kind of change a little bit when we're looking at post-divorce planning? So. Before we get started, I'll just tell you a little bit about um, me and why I do estate planning. So these are my two kids over here. It's always more fun to share a picture of them than it is to share a picture of me. But I got into estate planning. I graduated law school, became a lawyer, all that was kind of practicing in a couple different practice areas. And early on in my career, I had the opportunity um, to work on a case where two children um, involving two kids. And so the case Back pattern went something like this. Mom and dad were driving home um, from a from an evening out, just the two of them, and they were in a car accident. And unfortunately, they both passed away. Um, mom and dad didn't have any planning in place at all. And so they had two minor kids that they left behind. Um, I think they were four and six at the time. And they had substantial assets um, that, you know, could go to care for those children, but they hadn't, you know, done any planning, hadn't named anyone guardian or anything like that. So over the course of the next uh, four or five years, most of those assets were depleted um, in the court process as the family members kind of battled it out as to who would take custody of the kids and um, who would get what assets and, and how those assets would be structured. And so really, um, not only did these kids lose what was most important to them in their lives, their parents, um, but then they were subjected to years of, of litigation um, and fighting between family members and most of their inheritance gone. And so that um, situation really spoke to me and made me want to work with, you know, my clients to make sure that that never happens to any of them. And so before we can really get into what is estate planning and what kinds of things do we need to think about after someone gets a divorce, um, we need to kind of back up a little bit and say, what is estate planning in general? What are we really talking about here? And so just a kind of a refresher for those of you who um, haven't thought about estate planning for a while, or maybe you've never even thought about estate planning at all. 
usually when we're thinking about estate planning, we're thinking about certain documents. So we're thinking about a will. Um, we're thinking potentially about a trust if we have somebody that might want to avoid probate or uh, sort of control the assets beyond what a will can can do for them. We're talking about health care directives and powers of attorney, some of those things that we can put in place. Um, to help people manage their things during a period of incapacity if they were to um, experience that. And so as I'm going through some of these documents, you may already be thinking of some of the potential pitfalls that can happen when someone gets a divorce. Um, and we'll go through those in a little bit more detail as we go along. But just, you know, off the off, off the top of your head, maybe you're thinking, well, who's going to be in charge of someone's will or in charge of someone's trust if they don't have a spouse to do that for them? Who's going to be making healthcare decisions for someone? Usually spouses are given pretty good leeway to do that for people. But what happens if you don't have a spouse? And same thing with finances, right? Is who's going to manage finances for somebody who doesn't have a, a spouse that kind of gets that um, sort of automatic or at least a more ability under the law to come in and help someone manage those things. But um the way that we think about estate planning here and the way that I encourage all of you all to think about estate planning and especially anybody that you're working with that's going through a divorce or that just went through a divorce um, to think about estate planning is that it's much more than just documents. Um, really, there's a whole host of other things that have to go along with the document plan planning to really make that planning work. And so what we really want to get out of estate planning is what we call life and legacy planning. And so just like Chris was talking about in his presentation a few minutes ago, we need that financial clarity um, for clients. And as you can imagine, for some for, for some clients post-divorce, um, they may be getting this financial clarity for the first time in their life, depending if they were the person in the relationship that kind of handled the finances or, you know, were involved in that aspect of it. And then we want to make sure they have legal clarity. So we want to make them help them make good legal decisions. But in order to help them make good legal decisions, we've got to educate them a little bit about uh, how the legal process is structured and kind of what kind of decisions they need to be thinking about and that they can make. Um, we want to help them make wise decisions. And so, again, that goes along with not only the educational part of it, but the counseling part of it. Not everyone's family dynamics are the same. We have to take into consideration who the people are that are actually, you know, in your in in the client's life that has experienced the divorce, and so we got to have a good understanding of that. We want them to know that they have a trusted advisor. They potentially may have lost who they always relied on to be a trusted ad advisor, and now we want to make sure that um, that they know that they've got someone to turn to to fill that role for them. Um, and obviously, we want to do the documentation, but we want guidance to go along with that. And that can be particularly important for someone who has experienced a divorce because they may not have, um, you know, they don't, they no longer have a spouse that they're sort of navigating um, life with. They're kind of making a lot of the decisions that fell on them as a one member of a group um, individually now. So really, we want more than just the documents that are planning for death and incapacity. We want a plan um, that's actually going to work, and 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 along with those documents, that comes a lot of other um, guidance and education and counseling. Okay, one of the things that I think is really helpful when you're trying to talk to people that you work with about the importance of estate planning is to bring it back and think about who are we doing planning for. So really, when we're talking about estate planning, that's planning that 
a lot of it, the client themselves may not actually benefit. They may not be here when the planning is implemented, right? When we actually make the plan work um, that we put together for them, they, they could have passed on already, unless we're talking about incapacity. So really, they're doing this planning for their family. And that's important to remember because it can help you, it can help you help them. It helps me help them think through what are some of the things that, you know, we need to work on and think about. So if you're doing planning for your minor kids, if you have clients that have minor kids, obviously they have a very different set of concerns than if they have kids that are in college or if they have no kids at all and they're planning to leave their assets to a charity or to other family members, nieces, nephews, things like that. So we really want to be thinking about who are the people that are going to benefit and um, or, or on the other hand, suffer if we don't put the proper planning, planning in place. And then if you have clients um, that have a business, obviously that client is planning for the longevity of their business, the people who work for them, their clients, those kinds of things. And so um, if we pull it back and think about talk to our clients or talk to the people that you're working with about this important topic of estate planning, I think it really um, helps sort of hit home why it's so important if we think about who are the people that we're actually doing that planning for. Okay, and and yourself. And so I put that slide in here because really, the even though the clients may not be around, especially if they're divorced, um, there's a huge peace of mind that, that comes um, to our clients when they have this planning in place. And especially if they're divorced, because if they if they don't have a spouse that they can say, okay, well, if something happens to me, I know um, this person is here to take care of it for me. Um, and, and a lot of people stay up late at night worrying about what's going to happen if something happens to me because they don't have anybody in such a close relationship um, with such you know, kind of already pre-designed and pre-built in legal authority to do those things for them. So it really is about giving them peace of mind that they've done everything they can to protect their family or, or their loved ones as well. And it's also for the client because we're not just doing um, post-death planning, right? We're not just planning for what happens to your stuff after you pass away. We're planning for what happens if you become incapacitated. And that's all the more important um, for someone who doesn't have a spouse right there to be able to legally help them manage their finances and legally help them manage their health care. Okay, so now I want to think about the different types of planning that um, someone could do and what the special considerations are post-divorce for those types of planning. And so really for the purposes of this presentation, I've kind of broke it down into two types of planning. And one is planning to go through the probate process and the other is planning with a revocable living trust. And I want to think through with you guys, um, what are some of the, um, you know, what should what should clients be looking out for? What should people who have just experienced the divorce be looking out for um, under these two processes? And then if you guys have questions at the end, I'm hoping we can leave a little bit of time to answer those questions. And so before we talk about probate post-divorce, divorce, we need to just talk about the probate process in general. And so the probate process happens, a lot of people don't realize whether you have no planning in place at all, or even if you have a will um, in place, the, a will is specifically designed to go through the probate process. So for somebody who has no planning or who is planning with a will, this is kind of what it will look like. So someone passes away. Once someone passes away, we have to have somebody to step forward and file the probate proceeding. And the probate proceeding is necessary um, if we need a way to transfer assets out of an individual's name into someone else's name. So for the most part, um, 
most people, unless they have other some other planning in place, they their estate will have to go through that probate process so we can get things out of their name and into someone else's name. So we got to think about for our clients who are getting a divorce, who is filing this probate action for them, right? Um, it's not going to be their spouse anymore, or at least hopefully it's not going to be their spouse anymore. Um, important to think about who's named in a will if they currently have one, because it might be the spouse that's named in there and we need to change that. Um, so once that probate action is filed, it's in the court system, right? And it's public record. Um, it's easy to get access to that. It's easy for anyone to get access to that. So they can go and look up those those records and see what's, what was in the person's estate, who are different things supposed to go to in that person's estate, makes it all very um, accessible. Then we have to get some court orders authorizing uh, someone to be in charge of the estate, called a personal representative in some states and an executor in others. You guys uh, may have heard of that person or experienced serving as that person yourself. Um, that person is required to gather up all of the assets and then you know they're going to be the one that's in charge of distributing those assets uh, at the end of the probate so if we've got to sell the assets to you know liquidate them if there's real estate involved anything like that um, it'll be that person's responsibility for making sure all that happens and then um, and then and then I have here this slide about um, order of payout the personal representative or executor's responsibility to pay everything out of the estate after the creditors have been paid. And, you know, those those assets potentially go to the kids if the kids are above 18, potentially outright. So I have here total time minimum of one year. It's more like a year to two years um, in, in the Florida court system right now anyway. Um, and total fees of 3%. 3% is statutorily the rate that normally applies for most people's situations in Florida, but usually um, there's other things that have to be done in the probate estate that would entitle an attorney to extra fees. So usually it, it ends up being more than that. And a lot of attorneys just charge hourly anyway. And so um, those fees typically on an hourly basis are somewhere between three and 5,000 um, for most the average person's assets going through probate. Okay. And then a big, huge problem that we have with assets going through probate uh, is that right now the U.S. Department of Unclaimed Property has about $58 billion in assets. That's assets that are in there because um, someone passed away and no one knew that they had that asset or took any steps to claim it. So unclaimed property is a huge, huge thing, huge problem that we have, especially with assets going through probate, because that usually means that um, we don't have a great asset inventory or some other type of um, document or, or management system that was put into place to really know what assets someone has, has and how to locate those assets. Okay, so special problems with probate post-divorce. So as I was going along the probate process, you may have been thinking about um, some special problems that could have arisen because someone was divorced. I kind of mentioned one of them, which is what if someone did have a will in place and they name their ex-spouse as the executor or the personal representative on that will. That could be a huge, a huge problem potentially because if we haven't named somebody else, most people aren't going to want their ex-spouse. Some people might, but most people aren't going to want their ex-spouse to step in and perform that role for them after they've passed away. So who will handle probate for that client becomes really important. It's also really important to um, think about who is in line to inherit those assets. If they have no planning at all, um, who's, 
who are the people that their assets are going to go to? And is that what they would want? Um, for example, if there are minor kids involved in the minor kid inherits the asset, then we've got to go through the process of establishing a legal guardianship for that minor kid to put someone in charge uh, managing those funds until that child turns 18. Because under Florida law, at least, uh, minors aren't able to manage assets on their own. And it's that way, um, it's that way in, in every state, I believe. Uh, if the kids are over 18 and those assets go outright to the kids, is that what the divorced person, you know, the divorced client um, would have wanted? Maybe they would have preferred it going to someone else um, so that that someone else could help the kids manage those funds until they got a little bit older. And if you're thinking about the way it works typically with um, a married couple is that if one spouse passed away, it would, everything would go to the other spouse. And so that spouse is going to be around a little bit longer to make sure that the kids are getting that financial education or to help them manage their funds until they get a little bit older. And so um, having the whatever the divorced spouse has go outright to the kids or even go um, in trust and then go outright to the kids when they turn 18 might not be exactly what the divorced client would be looking for. Um, and then we got to think about protection for and from all these people who might be involved in in the person who's getting a divorced life. So we got to think about kids, right? They might have kids that they want to protect in the future. So they might want to protect their kids from outright inheritances, like I just mentioned. Um, they might want to protect them. Who's going to be the legal guardian? They may have people that they would prefer to do it over other people. And we got to make sure we get the right people named in there. We might want protection from future spouses, right? So we might need to talk to them about, hey, if, you, if you're looking to get married again, let's think about getting your, your assets um, set up get a premarital agreement in place and get your assets set up so that if something were to happen to you, they could potentially benefit a future spouse, but it wouldn't prevent your kids from getting those assets if, if something happened to you. And also former spouses. Um, you know, I talked a lot about the probate proceeding being a public one and it's easy to go in and access the records um, from that probate proceeding. And a, a divorced person may not want that. They may want some privacy protection um, from their former spouse that you know, they couldn't get if they didn't plan some other way than with no planning at all or even with a will in place. Okay, so now let's talk about the alternative type of planning. And um, this is all, you know, there's all kinds of different trusts and the flexibility of trusts and other types of planning is, is pretty great, but I wanted to keep it pretty simplistic um, for today's presentation. So um, we'll talk about the second most common type of, of planning that your divorce clients might be interested in, and that's revocable living trust uh, planning. And so just to take it a step back and think about what is a trust in general before we get to specific considerations that someone who uh, is divorced or is, re is getting a divorce might want to think about, a revocable living trust is really a contractual agreement that a person makes with themselves for their lifetime. So if you make a rev revocable living trust, you um, are signing an agreement with yourself saying that you are going to own and manage your property as trustee of your revocable living trust for a group of beneficiaries. And usually for most people, that beneficiary is themselves initially. And then we name other beneficiaries um, for what happens, you know, after you, after that you have passed away. And so um, revocable living trusts are great because we can transfer property into those trusts and we can use them to avoid probate. And that works because once property is transferred into a trust, now it's not owned in the individual's name. It's owned in the by the trust. 
So it's, um, you know, Renee Decker as trustee for her Renee Decker's Revocable Living Trust. And so if I were to pass away, instead of taking my assets to probate court, whoever I named a successor trustee would just um, be able to go in and follow the directions of my trust agreement without going to the probate court and saying, judge, we need a way to get this asset out of Renee's name into someone else's name because that asset's not in my name already. It also, Revocable Living Trust gives a lot of flexibility to the way that assets can be passed on to beneficiaries. So we can name someone in the Revocable Living Trust to manage those assets for those minor children. We can structure the trust so that a future spouse um, won't be able to just get all of the assets. They'll be able to get some of the assets and benefit from those assets, but then whatever is left over will go um, to the to the person who's passed away child. And, and we're also able to maintain privacy through a revocable living trust. So if we're worried about former spouses um, finding out what happened in the probate process, there's a, a level of privacy protection that we get from trust-based planning. So that's really um, of interest to some clients going through the divorce. So let's talk about some things that are specific to divorce people who are, are divorced. Um, that we have to think about a little bit more maybe than than a typical person. Um, and this can also apply just so you know to someone who is widowed. So if you're um, you know thinking through these things and you know of anyone that's widowed also this can apply to them. But so we need to think about roles, right? So if we have a revocable living trust and we have a married couple, usually the way that it's structured is that it's husband and wife as trustees. And then when the first of them passes away, the other spouse automatically becomes the trustee of those assets. So if we have a divorce client who's no longer married, obviously we don't have that spouse to play that role anymore. So it becomes very, very important to talk to clients about that and figure out who's going to be the best person um, to take over either personal representative, if it's going to be a probate estate, if it's just will-based planning in that successor trustee, if we're talking about um, trust-based planning, or it may even be multiple successor trustees because we may have a trustee for administering the trust when someone passes away. And then we may have other trustees that are gonna manage um, funds for the minor children, for example, or a special needs child um, is another example that it's important to think about. And so it really becomes important to kind of have um, more in-depth conversations with divorce clients about who is going to fill some of these roles because we want to do that in a way that's going to, we want to find a person that's going to, you know, has the abilities to fill that role and that the client feels comfortable filling that role for them. Um, and then we've got to think about beneficiaries. And so, you know, when, before the divorce client became divorced, when it was just their spouse, usually most people plan to leave everything to a spouse and then maybe to their kids or charities or, or other nieces, nephews, other family members, whatever the case may be, after the second spouse passes away. And so if we don't have that first spouse um, to leave assets to, then it becomes really important to think through with that client, how is how are assets going to be left? You know, who who is going to be the guardian for your minor children? Kind of how you want that to structured when you don't have that sort of person there that you trusted to be able to take care of things for you after you passed away. And then we always counsel our clients when we're thinking about estate planning that even a revocable living trust isn't enough. So even if they've done all the planning to make sure their assets aren't going to go through probate, there's that other period of time we have to think about, which is incapacity. And again, that's 
even more important for divorce clients than it is for other clients who, who do have that spouse there because there's some legal roles that a spouse can automatically step into um, that someone who doesn't doesn't have that um, person there, we're going to have to figure out a way uh, to legally allow that person to manage finances and to manage health care. And so we've got incapacity uh, minus planning equals a legal guardianship proceeding. And that's something that no one ever wants to experience because legal guardianship proceedings are um, not only costly and time consuming matters, but they're also very invasive to the person who is subject, the subject of the legal guardianship proceeding. So there's some very um, sort of not very complex documents that we can put in place to make sure that that never happens to someone. Those are powers of attorney, healthcare surrogates, some people might might know those as healthcare power of attorneys, living wills. Um, these documents aren't difficult to put in place as long as someone has the capacity to do that. But when someone lacks the capacity to do that, if we don't have these documents in place, and there is, you know, especially for divorced people who don't have that spouse who can automatically sort of step in and manage their healthcare for them, or who can at least manage joint accounts with them, if something happens to them, um, we've really got to have that other person to do that for them. And it's really important um, to push them to think about who would you want to manage your health care for you if you're not able to do that for yourself? And who would you want to manage your finances if you're not able to do that yourself? And then we've got to think about specifically about some do-it-yourself planning that everyone kind of always engages in a little bit, either on purpose or by accident. And so um, that's beneficiary designations on other types of accounts. So financial accounts like, you know, 401k plans or other types of retirement accounts, checking, savings accounts, you, all those types of accounts that would allow you to put um, a beneficiary or a, a pay on death um, beneficiary on those accounts. Oftentimes, people end up putting their spouse on there while they're married. And if they don't do something to change that, um, it can leave them in a real big mess if that ex-spouse is the one that actually ends up getting that asset from them. And it's probably something they definitely didn't want to happen post-divorce. Um, life insurance is another one that it's really important to, um, to make sure that beneficiary designation is changed. I had a client um, just a couple years ago who came to me. Her husband had just passed away and the he was supposed to have put his minor kids as the beneficiary on his 401ks, but he hadn't done that. Um, he actually he hadn't put uh, somehow when he went to redo all of that after his divorce, it just got left off with no beneficiary designations on there. Um, and it was all going just to his estate. Well, he had been married for um, six months and because literally three days over that six month time period. And because of that, um, the way the 401k was structured, everything went to that new spouse and nothing was available to those minor kids. So it can be potentially devastating not to change those beneficiary designations after a divorce. Um, so some post-divorce pitfalls to consider is who will know what to do and where to find their documents. If they have children, um, do they have someone in place to act as a temporary guardian? That's a big thing because you know, you might think when someone's married, there's if if they're in a car accident and can't make it home, hopefully the spouse is there. But post-divorce, um, you know, the spouse isn't going to be at the home. And so we've got to figure out what's going to happen to the children and have those temporary guardian um, nominations selected. So if that uh, no one could reach mom, if the kids are with mom, we have a backup plan and those children aren't going into the custody of DCF until, um, you know, someone can be found to take them. 
Will your family know how to find your assets? Important conversation um, to have with someone who probably doesn't have joint accounts anymore. Um, and so important to think through all of these things about how is someone going to locate your assets and get access to them if you pass away. Do your clients need help to clarify exactly what they need and how to create and maintain a plan that's going to work for them? They need a little bit more counseling because they don't have that counsel, um, that relationship partner there with them to help them think through these issues. So uh, very important to educate them and make them think about the various roles that they now need to fill um, that their spouse isn't going to be filling for them. And um, just really what we try to do for our clients is making sure that, that they have someone that they feel comfortable coming to and talking about, you know, things like who's going to get custody of the kids or uh, how assets are going to be managed for their children if they leave behind minor children. And, and really, it's about um, making sure they have that trusted advisor to go through to help them think through each of these complications that could arise. And so um, that's just my contact information on there. Uh, I probably did go over a little bit since we kind of upped my time. So not sure exactly how it's going to work with the schedule, but I'm happy to answer any questions if anyone has any questions. All right, Renee, thank you very much. Virtual round of applause for Renee. Um, Renee, can you go into participants, panelists, and make me host again? Yes. Awesome. And the first question we got was, can you transfer a mortgage property into the trust? Can you transfer a mortgage property into the trust? Yes, uh, you can transfer a mortgage property into the trust. It works a little bit differently if it's your here in Florida. You know, we have homestead here in Florida. It works a little bit differently if it's your homestead property versus non-homestead property. But both can be transferred into a trust. Awesome. Um, we have another question. Oh, yep. You got to make me host. Oh, okay. Let's see. I thought I did that. If you click on the three dots next to my name. Okay. Sorry. I had to hit there it in two places go. and I only hit it in one. Now I can turn my camera back on. Um, Brian says two questions, <laughs> but Brian, you didn't put what your questions were. Um, so if you'll type those back in the chat, we can answer them. Um, another question. What do you charge? I, I know it's going to vary, but someone's asking for a ballpark of what you charge to set up a revocable trust and estate plan. Yeah. Um, and so like Seth said, it's going to vary. And I, I always have um, people who are interested in trust planning with me come in and we have a, a like sort of a process that we walk them through. And then we we give to them different planning options at various price ranges. Um, but just to give you a ballpark figure, figure um, it's usually somewhere between the 3000 and 5000 range, depending on how complex the trust is and kind of what the, the various fun design functions that we're adding to it. Uh, all right, more questions. Does a property that transfers upon death go through probate? Does a property that transfers on death go through probate? And I'm going to guess that we're talking about real property here. Um, so if you have, if someone has real property and it's set up in a ladybird deed or enhanced life estate deed or something like that. There's kind of a couple of different terms and different structures for those out there. Then no, that property would not go through probate um, when someone passed away. Now there's all kinds of pitfalls that go along with each of those planning types. Um, so it's very important that somebody talk to someone knowledgeable about the pitfalls um, because not everybody out there is and not everything that you read on the internet is going to properly advise you about what some of those pitfalls are. So I do have clients come in all the time who have those things set up and they don't realize um, some of the detrimental things that go along with that. Um, so it's just really important to make sure everybody's done their research if they're planning that way, but it, it, they can avoid probate by planning that way. 
Um, can a trust be put in place before a marriage? Can a trust put in place before a marriage function as a prenup? No. Um, so the prenup is doing different things. Then it's it's waiving certain rights that the trust itself isn't going to be able to waive. So if you've got someone who's about to remarry after a divorce, it's really important to talk through them with the two different things that they can do. Uh, we need that prenup to waive certain rights that um, that the law gives to a spouse. And then we can use the revocable living trust to make sure that the distributions are going the way that the, um, the couple want it to go pursuant to the prenup. But we do need both. How does a revocable trust work in a situation where a single woman sets it up to protect her assets for herself and her children, then she gets married and ends up with joint assets which need to be put in a co-grantor trust? Can those assets be kept separate and protected? Yes, they can be kept separate and protected. We'd have to do a little bit of work to the trust that she's got or or to the trust that the couple, the new couple, um, plan together. But we actually are able to keep separate property, separate property. That's and, and that that's a common way of planning. But you want to make sure you're, you know, following all the steps that are required to keep it separate property because if it becomes joint property, it's lost that protection. Um, if prior year tax returns are amended to take more deductions and reduce taxable income, are penalties and interest waived? I don't know if we're talking about taxes that are specific to um, the trust itself, but no, I'm not a CPA or um, an accountant, so I, I would probably have to get with uh, a CPA on on that just to and have a little bit more facts about um, the situation to really be able to answer that. How does probate work in community property states like Arizona? Yeah, so um, here in Florida, we're we're not a community property state, so um, we're separate property. Community property um, does have a, a different sort of process to it because the spouses have different rights in that property. So um, whereas if you were practicing in a separate property state like I am, um, some of the assets can be kept completely separately and some of those same assets wouldn't be able to be kept completely separate in a community property state. So um, they are going to work a little bit different. So it's important to talk to an attorney who you know, practices in a community property state and can walk the client specifically through what is community property and what can be separate property, even in a community property state, if that's what the clients um, are, are hoping to accomplish. Awesome. One more question is what we've got time for. And then it's time for our next speaker. Do you operate in multiple states? Yeah. So my main office is here in Florida. Um, I am part of a, of a larger firm that is has works with me here in Florida for their Florida clients, but then we also work across the nation. So if anybody has clients that are out of state, then then we have somebody that can help them. All right. Thank you so much, Renee. We greatly appreciate your time. All right. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.